Okay, put on your seatbelts, we're going to heaven. Revelation chapter four, verse one. After these things, this is John writing, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Has to be James Earl Jones, right? I'll be disappointed if it's not. John Facenda for you old heads. Immediately I was in the spirit, verse two, and behold a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat on there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, John has no way to capture what he's seeing. You understand that, right? So he, he's giving us these similes, these metaphors. I mean, can you imagine going to the Lord of the Rings and then trying to tell somebody what you saw? And this is what he's experiencing. And verse four says he saw 24 thrones and on them were 24 elders. They're critical to the text. They were sitting clothed in white robes and they're had uh, crowns on their head and gold on their heads, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, very similar to Moses on Mount Sinai. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne of God, which are the seven spirits of God. Don't leave here saying uh, that there's not a trinity, there's seven parts of God. That's not what it's saying. I think you know by now seven is the number of completion. This is what completes God, but there, there is a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't... Um, don't leave thinking that. And you've heard of verse six, there's a sea of glass like crystal in the midst of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like the face of a man, and the fourth was a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, holy, is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. You just sang that. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, this other group, the 24 elders, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before his throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive power and glory and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The dominant question, or the predominant question of the last 5,000 years of the human race is this, is there life after death? There is not even a close second. Now, I know there's a debate on creation and how we got here, is there a big bang, is there design, is there creation, but, but we're here and we know we're here. So the, the major question is where are we going? Is there life beyond the grave? And the reason this is a burning question is because three people die every second. That's 180 every minute. 6,500 people in the world will die during this church service. And wrap your mind around this. 250,000 people will die today, Sunday. And tomorrow, Monday. A quarter of a million people. So the burning question is there's something beyond the grave. Now, the reason is obvious. Think about it. We as human beings are highly relational. We have this this desire to be loved, we have this overwhelming capacity to give love. Uh, in fact, every song, every poem, every movie, just, just, just attune your ears, is either about falling in or out of love or in love or love went wrong. Um, I can't believe I'm gonna admit this, 
But I went to my first country concert two weeks ago. Can you believe that? We have country fans here. So uh, I abhorred country music for most of my life. And then my daughter had a friend from Texas. And my daughter started playing it in the car. And I warmed up to it. And so I go to the country concert, and it's no different than rock and roll or pop music. It's all about love, except they add beer and drinking to every song, okay, and pickup trucks. Uh, but it's all the same, right? We, this, oh, this overwhelming capacity to love and then to be known. Intimacy drives the human race, and then we, we're creative, and we're different, and we have personalities, and and everybody feels things differently, and we, we have likes and dislikes. I like vanilla, somebody likes chocolate, somebody likes Rocky Road, and, and we have personalities and peculiarities. And, and, you know, to think, poof, it's gone, is very disturbing, and should be. Um, belief in the afterlife is very robust, even today, about 90%. Through history, every culture and every civilization has always believed, and I think it's God ordained, I think it's innate in, in man, that there's got to be something beyond this, right? Uh, in Egypt, they built the pyramids because they thought the pharaohs would live longer in the afterlife than they would on earth, so they put all those good things in the pyramids. There's a verse in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 10, you don't need to turn there, where God said, there shall not be found among you anything who makes his son or his daughters pass through the fire. That was an occultic ritual or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures up spells, or a medium, that's between here and the afterlife, uh, a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and it's because of these abominations the Lord your God is driving these Canaanites out of this land. So 4,000 years ago in Canaanite religion, there was a robust belief in the afterlife. The Greeks and Romans had the Elysium fields. Here's the rub. Lately, however, what's gaining traction is that this is all there is. And by the way, we, can't, we don't have to fear that anymore because after all, you may have heard this, death is just a part of life. And you know who popularized that? The church that most people go to, the multiplex. That's where you take your kids and I take my kids. That's where most people gather. And there was a movie that came out 20-some years ago that really gave us this theology. It was called The Lion King. Now, I know I'm stepping on sacred cows, Disney, right? But uh, this movie comes out, and again, I took my kids. You have that opening scene, one of the greatest opening scenes in movies, and, you know, the circle of life, and Elton John, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful. Um, and what they're talking about for the animals is you know, the zebra eats the grass, then the lion eats the zebra, and then he becomes fertilizer for the grass, and we're all in this circle of life. The problem is Disney was telling you that's what happens to you and me also. And that's what they were telling our kids. And the thing is, we're not animals. We're human beings, and we're not part of the circle of life. Peter Kreef does a wonderful job for this. He's a uh, professor at Boston University, and he actually was at my daughter's College. I had a chance to meet him at the King's College. He tells a story of a seven-year-old boy who lost his three-year-old cousin. And he comes to his mom and he says to his mom, what or where is my cousin now? And the mom gives him this Lion King theology. She says, well, he's gone back to the earth from which he came. So next spring when the earth puts forth new flowers, you can know that your cousin's life fertilized those flowers. I love the kid's reaction. He screamed and ran out of the room and said, I don't want him to be fertilizer. <laughs> Neither do you. 
Neither do I. Because it's unnatural. It doesn't make any sense, right? So my point is, I'm gonna argue the other way, that, that death's not a part of life. Now, don't get me wrong, the Bible speaks very clearly and realistically about death. We're all gonna die. Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. However, in the Bible's terminology of death, listen to this. Job 18 calls death the king of terror. Sounds like fear's involved there. Ecclesiastes 12, remember your creator, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the well or the wheel is broken at the well. In other words, something has, has, has broken, something's wrong. Paul said in Corinthians, death was the last enemy and it had a sting. So there's a fear in death. Carl Jung, who would be on the Mount Rushmore of psychoanalysis, far from a Christian, said death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There's no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal not only as a physical event, but far more so physically a human being is torn away from us. And what remains is the icy stillness of death. Here no longer exists any hope of a relationship for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. Very unnatural. Now to bring it down to real life, we'll go to the quotable Woody Allen, who said, I don't wanna live on in immortality through my work. I wanna live on by not dying. He was honest. He said, I don't wanna live on in the hearts and minds of my countrymen. I wanna live in my apartment. And if you don't think we fear death, bring it up at the Eagles game today or the next cocktail party or when you're out to dinner or a birthday party, it is the ultimate buzzkill. Hey, can we talk about death? Where do you think we're going when we die? Uh, uh, 250,000 people are gonna die today. What do you, I mean, people will scatter. They'll think you're crazy. Something that's gonna happen to all of us and is a part of life we never talk about, we never prepare for it, we act like it doesn't exist. And John here in Revelation 4 has a glimpse of the other side. He's one of the few people who's given a glimpse of what life looks like on the other side. Now, Paul had that glimpse, but he said there was two things that were too wonderful for him. John is told to write what he's seen. And that's what we're gonna look at. We're gonna look at heaven and proof of heaven and the proof of the afterlife. Before we do, I gotta get you into one technical thing. You ready for it? Class, you ready? Just one technical thing. Look again at something you would overlook, and so would I. Chapter four, verse one says, after these things. It's a common, common word in the Greek used in Revelation many times. It's called metatalta, and it means there's been a transition. Remember the divine outline? John writes in Revelation 1.19, write the things thou hast seen, the picture of Christ, the things that are the churches, and the things that will come to pass. After the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we never see the word church again. We never see the church again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. is never said again. As Ed Heinsohn said last week, the church has been raptured, called up. So is John. John, come up here. And then we see this representation of heaven. We'll get there. There means there's a transition that has taken place. Heaven's mentioned 500 times in the Bible. John sees four things we gotta talk about very briefly. A throne, 24 elders who are critical to this chapter, a lamb, and a scroll. Let's start with a throne. 
This is glorious. John said, I looked, and there was a throne, and one who sat on the throne. And he gives the description, and obviously this is God. 14 times in this chapter, throne is used. 46 times in Revelation. Anytime the word throne is used in the Bible, it's poverty, power, authority, leadership. It speaks of kings and dominions, etc. Man has been ruled by man for the history of this world. It's not a pretty story. In fact, we watch a lot of it, right? Turn on cable TV, they talk about the White House all day, two talking heads come up. I mean, we're, we're always wondering who's on the throne. Election season's coming. You see all these ridiculous ads, right? The Atlantic this month has as their cover, is democracy dying? They're looking at the shenanigans in, in Washington saying, you know, is, is democracy this limited experiment next to go? They write in the article, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia is a monument, listen to this, to the benefits of pessimism. The center, which is situated across an open expanse from Independence Hall, is a superior education institution, but understood correctly, it is also a warning about the fragility of the American experiment. The 42 founding fathers who are celebrated there in life-size bronze, the 39 who signed the Constitution, the three who refused, did not believe men were good. Quite the opposite. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. They also didn't believe in man's ability to rule himself. They created the separation of powers. They believed in depravity as the idea. The failed history of this planet is man's ability to govern himself. Now, there have been good kings and presidents, I understand all that, but basically, it's a horrible history of man ruling over man. And John, who's experiencing the emperor Domitian, who's killing Christians, and it's the end of everything they believe, he's on a penal colony in the Aegean Sea, looks up in heaven and sees a throne, and it's permanent, and there's righteousness, and there's glory and there's equity and there's fairness. And I say this all the time. We need to understand that there is a throne and there's a God in control and he raises up kings and he brings them low and he's not only involved in the affairs of state, he's involved in your life. And just like John knew horrible things were about to happen and horrible things will happen, he still knew there was a God in control. And we still need to see that throne. We need to need, know he who's in us is greater than, than he who's in the world. We need to know that, that there's a greater authority than what we're seeing play out, that it's all moving somewhere, that history is God's story. And every once in a while, we need to look up and see this throne. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven. We're told to set our minds on things above. What does that mean? Just read your Bible, no. You're to read the things that are coming for us, the hope that is in us. We need to read about heaven more than we do. We need to get heavenly minded so we'll be earthly good. Because whether life is good or hard, we need a glimpse of what's coming. And we need to see that God is on the throne. Now here's the beauty of this. He gives us a description. I'm not gonna get into the, to the Sardis stone and all that. We, you can play around with that on your own. Look at verse three. He looks and there's a rainbow around the throne and it's like emerald. Now when's the last time we saw a rainbow? In Genesis, in the flood, right? God says, I can't bear with man any longer and God's gonna kill everything that breathes and crawls on the earth. 
And when it's all over, Noah and his family, eight people, God says, Noah, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to see a rainbow. It's very important because it had never rained before. Now, every time you hear a pitter-patter of rain, you think, oh, my gosh, is God judging the earth again? He goes, no, because you'll see this rainbow. And for as long as the earth remains, there'll be seed time and harvest, summer and winter. Life will go on, okay, until God steps into history, which we're going to get to in Revelation. Now, Spurgeon does something fascinating with this. He looks at the Hebrew, and the word for rainbow is bow, like bow and arrow. In fact, next week we're going to look at the Antichrist who has a bow and no arrows. He's a usurper. But Spurgeon says, notice the bow from our vantage point. It's pointing up, not down. In other words, God's not pointing the arrow at us. He's pointing it at himself, that he would pay the price. I, I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's cool, isn't it? But let me tell you what is true about the rainbow. The first time grace appears in all the Bible, it says God would wipe out everything on the face of the earth, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Not because he was worthy, not because he had a better devotional life than everybody else, not because he gave into the offering. Grace is God's unmerited favor. You can't earn it. Grace came to Noah in a way that only those who accept Christ understand. And here's my point. The throne we're looking at is a throne of grace. Hebrew says we can boldly enter into this throne because our Father sits on this throne. Listen, I thought I understood grace more than anyone because I was radically saved. If anyone gets that we can't earn God's favor, I do. And I've preached it for a long time, and for a long time I thought grace was the starting point. You know what I've learned? It's the only point. It's the only point. How do I know? Paul said, the grace of God has appeared teaching us how to live righteous and soberly in this age before God and man. It's only by grace that I'm saved. It's only by grace that I'm sustained. You know, I was thinking what Judge Kavanaugh's gone through, right? I don't want to get involved in who's right and who's wrong. But, but can you imagine getting, if that never happened, all of this happening and all the world watching? That's why we need grace. What if one by one, each Sunday, we would show everything you just thought this week on the screen? Hmm. See why we need grace? It's the only thing, guys. We need to be more heavenly minded. We need to go to this throne of grace when things are spinning out of control, even when things are going well. We need to know God's on the throne. John sees it, and he said, here's proof of heaven. Now, the second thing he sees are 24 elders. Now, this is interesting because of what they're wearing. They have a crown on their head of gold. They're sitting on thrones. They're singing a song. They have white raiment. They're representing somebody, right? So the elders of our church represent Calvary Chapel. So they're representing a group of people. That's what John sees. Now, some people say, well, they're angels, or it's the nation of Israel, or it's tribulation saints. I'm going to try and prove to you that it can't be any of those things. First of all, use, just use what you already know. Their entire attire comes from the overcomers of the church. Remember that? So he who overcomes will have a gold crown, he who overcomes will have this, and be dressed in white. So that tells me these are redeemed people out of the church age. Fairly obvious to me. Um, look at verse 11. They say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist or were created. But anybody could say that, right? 
To me, here's the smoking gun. Chapter five, verse nine says, they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, speaking of Jesus, and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Angels aren't redeemed. Only human beings can be redeemed. And it can't be Israel because it says out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, you've made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. I believe this is the raptured church in heaven. I believe these people have experienced 1 Thessalonians where the dead will rise in Christ first, then we who are alive and remain. I believe in heaven before hell breaks loose on earth, this is all redeemed humanity around the throne of God. Now, if that's true, you ready for this? You're in Revelation chapter four. Now, your friends think you're nuts now? <laughs> Tell them you're in the Bible. You're in Revelation chapter four. You're in Revelation chapter five. You're singing the song. John may have been standing next to you in some weird uh, inception kind of deal, multi-universe. He saw you and me singing. My son and I were able to go to the first Eagles game at Lincoln Financial Field. And when you walk in the mall now, these memorabilia stores, you'll see that picture. And every time I'm there, I wish I had a magnifying glass because I'm trying, I know where we sat and I'm trying to find us, but we're there. And guess what we're doing? We're singing, not standing and watching like we do now. We're singing and we're singing new songs. Some of you don't like new songs, some of you like old songs. We're singing a new song and it's a beautiful song. Can I add this in? To the mix? You know singing is a spiritual discipline? How do I know? Because sometimes you don't like doing it. Huh? Do you ever go to pray? pray Praying is hard work because sometimes you don't want to do it. Fasting is hard work because sometimes you don't want to do it. Now, I don't have the problem. I have problems with other spiritual disciplines. Singing, since the time I got saved, I could walk into hymns. I could walk into rock praise, our praise, Black church praise. I could walk into any praise and I start singing. At Christmas, I go hoarse because I sing through all the services and then preach. Singing is a spiritual discipline. Why? Because did you know today when you sang the Revelation song, you sang that it came right out of Scripture? Do you ever notice on a Sunday night or maybe Monday morning you're singing one of our songs from the morning? Yeah, it's just weird because I'll hear my kids and you know, people tell me when they drive their kids home from church, they'll be, or Monday at school, they're singing our worship songs. And you're singing it, and by the way, what gets repeated gets remembered. A lot of us learned our theology through the old hymns and some of our worship songs. So it is a spiritual discipline, and it is pretty cool to see that we're around the throne. Now, the devil's crafty, right? So he takes these verses, and he convinces people that heaven's gonna be boring, because after all, look at Revelation 4, it's one long, unending church service, isn't it? There's a, look up on the screen, the far side uh, comic, uh, the guy's in heaven and he's asking for a magazine because it's so boring. I don't have time to go into heaven, I could talk forever about it. Um, can I ask you a question? You think God's boring? Well, he's there. You think life is boring? Well, if you like life, he created everything you see here. Everything you love and know, he created. 
And the next world is going to be mind-boggling. These creatures, by the way, these are animals. The word zoon is animal. Eyes in the back of their head. I mean, Lord of the Rings is nothing. In fact, Tolkien said that. Tolkien said the greatest reality is what we read in Scripture. It's going to blow your mind. Resurrected bodies, alternate universes. Uh, we always argue, what would you rather do, fly or be invisible? You could be both, right? It's going to be cool. It's going to be otherworldly. How could it ever be? could only be boring to people who don't love God. could only be boring. David said, in thy presence is fullness of joy. The way I like to frame it up, do you ever have a moment of ecstasy? Like, like you're with someone or with a group of people or you do something and you just feel right in your own skin and you want to freeze time? That will be every second of eternity. In thy presence is fullness of joy. But I got to show you one more thing here. It's so cool. It says they sang this song, you have made us kings and priests to our God and you have taken us out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. Now, they didn't know the world as we know it now. Okay, they knew a world, right? But if you ever wanted to disprove the Bible, you should go to this verse. Because this was written 2,000 years ago. And they were predicting that literally the gospel would go to all the world, which was ridiculous. Can I prove to you how ridiculous it was? Outside of Christianity, no other belief system covers the world. Now, you've met people from other religions only because of globalization and airplanes and emigration and all that. Uh, but Christianity is the only worldwide religion. Think about this. 90% of Muslims live in a band from Southeast Asia to the Middle East to Northern Africa. 95% of all Hindus live in India. 88% of all Buddhists um, live in East Asia. Now watch this. 25% of Christians live in Europe. 25% of Christians live in Central and South America. 22% of Christians live in Africa. Uh, by the way, it's growing exponentially in Africa and Asia. 15% in Asia and where you thought they all lived, only 12% in North America, which includes Canada. We always forget them, right? So what they wrote 2,000 years is true. Christianity really has become a global religion and covered the world. The third thing John sees is a lamb. Chapter five, verse one, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And an angel, a strong angel, who proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and the lucid seals? And no one in heaven or the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it and I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll and look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and the 24 elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, uh, if we wanted to slow down, we could spend a week on Jesus being slain from the foundation of the world and we could trace that all the way through the Bible. We don't have the time. But you all know the lamb starts in the Exodus, right? Moses said, take a lamb. And by the word, the word slain here means to slice the throat. And so they would slice the throat and the blood would be on the doorpost and that's how they got out of Egypt. 
Then John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. Then Jesus, the spear is put in his side and he dies. He's the Lamb of God. Now, we see him become the Lion of the tribe of Judah. See, the Lamb is his humility. The Lamb was his sacrifice. The Passover, all those things. Now, remember Jesus' temptation in Luke 4? You're hungry, turning stones into bread, uh, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, throw yourself down, the angels will gather you. The greatest temptation was he took him in the spirit and said, here's the kingdoms of the world. And if you'll bow down and worship me, they're mine to give. Now, Satan's a liar, so I don't know what part of that was a lie. I know that Adam and Eve forfeited our right to the earth. But I don't know if Satan had complete authority. He's on a leash, so I don't know how all that works. The temptation was for Jesus to sidestep the cross and purchase our redemption another way, which was impossible. However, he went to the cross and he who knew no sin, he had no capability of sin, he did not have the sin of Adam, he's aware of temptation, became sin. One sin was so heinous that he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just one sin. Not all the sins we could put on the screen, just from this week. I'm gonna get back to Jesus in a minute. The fourth thing John sees is this scroll. What is the scroll? The scroll is the title deed to the earth. In other words, no one was able to open this scroll because no one has redeemed us. This scroll, when it lays, opens up, will lay out the future of planet Earth, which will start next week. Out of this, seal judgments will come, trumpets and vials, and, and we'll see what's coming on the earth. Let me bring this to a conclusion, and I'll be very brief. Is there life after death? Absolutely. And very briefly, I'm gonna give you six reasons why, and you ready for this? Four aren't even in the Bible. Six reasons why there's life after death, and four of them aren't even in the Bible. Number one. Now, before I say number one, we have been trained as Christians where the skeptics frame the argument and we defend. So I'm gonna turn the tables on them a little bit. Because I try and teach you guys common sense. I don't know if you're getting it, but I'm trying to teach it to you. The first proof of life after death is no one can prove there is no life after death. Did you all get that? There is no proof that there isn't life after death. They only have one proof, a body, a carcass. That's all they have. But that does not prove that there isn't life after death. Um, I've read a lot about near-death experiences. I've read the Christian side, I've read the unbeliever side. I do not believe they are a proof of life after death. I think they prove there's the possibility of life after death. But again, there is no concrete evidence there isn't life after death. Number two, the word spiritus, Latin. I picked up a book about four years ago and wrote an essay on it by Victoria Sweet called God's Hotel. It's about the last almshouse in America in San Francisco. An almshouse was started in the Middle Ages by Christians who cared for the sick. It was the forerunner to hospitals. And then when we turned everything over to the paid professionals, there was no need for almshouses. The reason they still exist is because some people don't have access to healthcare. So Victoria Sweet is an intern, she wants to be a doctor, and her first autopsy's coming. She's so excited. I guess if you're in that field, it's, that's what you look forward to. 
And they wheel a man in, and it's Mr. Baker. She had care for this guy for several weeks. And they open up Mr. Baker, and they pull out his organs and his brain, and I would have passed out, but I guess they like that kind of stuff. And they get in there and all. And she said when it was over, she was disappointed because something was missing. She said it's like taking a cover off a baseball, unwinding all the string, but there's no little black ball in the middle. Something was missing. There was no black ball. There was no Mr. Baker. So she went to old medical books, and she said what I had learned in medicine once had names. This little black ball, whatever you want to call it, of what was missing from a corpse. Two names, actually. The first was spiritus, from which we get the English spirit. Uh, the Latin spiritus was the insubstantial, uh, breathing, regular, rhythmic of a live body, so shockingly absent from the dead. Spiritus is what is exhaled at the last breath. And then there was the word anima. We get animation from this. Usually translated soul, the Latin is better for conveying the second striking distinction between Mr. Baker's dead body and Mr. Baker, its lack of movement. Because anima is not really the abstraction soul, anima is the invisible force that animates the body, moves it not only willfully but also unconsciously, dreams, right? All those little movements that the living body makes all the time. The slight tremor of the fingers, the pounding of the heart that shakes the living frame once a second, the gentle rise and fall of the chest, those movements by which we perceive that someone is alive. Anima, ancient medicine had observed, is just as absent from the dead body as spiritus. By the time medicine got to me, however, words like spiritus and anima had been banished from medical books. I had no concepts for describing what I was seeing. Perhaps it had been an autopsy from the Greek, autoospia, seeing for oneself, that had brought about the disappearance of those words from the Western vocabulary. Perhaps it was the absence of what she calls the little black box, the ghost in the machine, the software that drives the hardware. Something was missing, and of course, we know what it was. Third proof of life after death is miracles. Now, I can't get into this. Lee Strobel, I think, has written a definitive book, um, at least for lay people. Uh, the Case for Miracles, where as an investigative reporter, he uses his journalism skills. He goes to Madagascar. He goes to India. He goes to America. All the places where miracles supposedly happen and verifies them. And they are bona fide. And I think they're a proof of life after death. Uh, the fourth one is the brain slash the mind which are two different things. The brain is an organ. But you have to ask yourself, what is the mind? Why do we like vanilla and chocolate and have different likes and dislikes? Uh, if you're interested in this, I think Dinesh D'Souza's book, Life After Death, which is primarily written in this regard, uh, can convince you. The thing is, I'm not as smart as Dinesh. I read it, I like it, I have no idea what he's talking about. But at least he knows. Number five is the Bible. The Bible mentions heaven 500 times. It talks about the place of the Dan. It talks about spirit worlds. It talks about God in heaven. It talks about, uh, we're going to get to Revelation, the bottomless pit. Some people are like, oh, there's no such thing as a bottomless pit. That's a metaphor. Well, wait a second. If there is a bottomless pit and if it's not a metaphor, the only place you could have it is in a globe. Because only in a globe could the pit be bottomless, right? You guys... That'll come to you after lunch. A lot of parables about the life 
after, etc. But the re last reason why there's life after death, you don't even have to believe the Bible's true to believe this. Jesus. Jesus. So the argument is no one's ever come back to tell us. You ever hear that one? No one's ever come back from the grave to tell us. Uh, yeah, I think somebody did. There was a weekend that changed the world 2,000 years ago. Here's what it did. It took 11 followers and a few women and turned them into a worldwide religion. It created Western civilization, human rights, our constitution, etc. It's the dominant theme in art, music, and philosophy. It's how we mark time before Christ and after Christ. Jesus has become the central figure in human history. Somebody like Mamadis has a nice little uh, museum you can go to in Israel, but not everybody knows who he is. But Jesus is by far the most predominant figure in history. And then many prominent Jews chucked tradition and everything they knew to become Christians. It is what many people call the hinge of history. And why did all this happen? Resurrection. It didn't happen because of the Bible. They didn't even have a Bible. The resurrection is what changed everything. Andy Stanley said something that is brilliant in its simplicity. If a man can predict his death, die, and rise again, I'll believe anything that man says. If a man can predict his death, die, and rise from the dead, I'll believe anything that man says. So even if you don't believe the Bible today, can I tell you what Jesus said about heaven? Jesus said in John 3, 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. In Luke 10, 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Boy, I'd love to be a Bible teacher and be able to throw that one out. Yeah, I saw Satan fall. I mean, talk about cred, that's pretty good. John 14, 2, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. Don't you love that Jesus called heaven his father's house? They say when your mother dies, you can never go home. I think as a Christian, it's very hard to call any place home. I really do. I think that's why C.S. Lewis said, if there's nothing in this world that makes you happy, it's probably proof we were made for another world. And our Father's house is waiting, and it's where we belong. Again, if a man can predict his death, die, and rise from again, I'll believe anything that man says. But probably the most profound thing Jesus said in relation to this, life after death, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, everybody's got a way, right? Everybody thinks they have a corner on truth. And everybody thinks they know what life is about. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And then he said this, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because we're closed-minded and we're exclusive? No, because... He was the lamb that was slain. He can open the scrolls. He paid for our sins. He came back from the dead. If a man dies, predicts his death, comes back, I'll believe anything that man says. And he did it, and he said it. And I believe in that way, and I've walked through it. And here's the thing. If you've made Christ your Savior, you've tasted of the eternal. That's why you're ruined for this world. Where is 
the sting of death. Where is thy victory, Paul said. Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're the most pitied of all men. This is foolishness. But because Jesus conquered the grave, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, awaiting his execution at the hands of Hitler, was able to call death of a Christian the supreme festival to the road of freedom. Fifty years earlier, an American minister wrote his own epitaph. Someday you will read in the papers, D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I will be more alive than I am now. People went to the stake. They were, they were tortured. They were sawn in two, all believing this. But you know what's really cool? is that D.L. Moody was a wonderful preacher and Bonhoeffer was really smart and he was a political guy. And, you know, we read about some of these giants of history, but guess, guess, guess what the first guy was told? The first guy had his hands nailed to a cross or tied to a cross. The first guy was a thief. The first guy never gave in an offering. The first guy was never baptized. The first guy never told anybody about Jesus. And Jesus looked him dead in the eye and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. If a man can predict his death, die and rise from the dead, I'll believe anything that man says. Thief on the cross, never had a Bible, never listened to a CD or a podcast. Lord, remember me when you come into your glory. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know this way, I do anything I could, but there's nothing I can do that you would receive Christ. You can't earn it. I hope, I hope you don't believe that. Again, thief on the cross, if you could earn it, he should have been the last one in, or the first one in the hell. That's grace. You can't earn it. God's not going to grade on a curve. There is a wonderful Savior who loves you, who's knocking at the door. If you open your heart and go through that door, there awaits for you the scene in heaven. Here's the problem. We're all going into eternity. And we're going to get to a place called the great white throne that is not a good place. We're all going into eternity. All of us. But all you got to do is make this choice today. And that's where life will begin.